Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Well, um, as you are grabbing your Bibles or grabbing your digital devices that you use for your Bibles, join me one more time, the last time in the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 20. And today we're going to be concluding our walk uh, through the Ten Commandments. After we've actually, we finished the Ten Commandments uh, for 12 weeks, we've been camping out. Get it? No pun intended, right? Because the Israelites were camping out. Never mind. All right. Um, some of you will get that at lunchtime, and it'll be hilarious. And you'll, like, you know, spray food all over the place. No, I'm teasing. It's very graphic. Um, but, uh, but anyway, we've been camping out in Exodus 20. We picked this passage apart, setting each commandment in detail. Um, and while John 3.16 is probably known as the most famous verse in the Bible, um, it is probably very fair to say that Exodus chapter 20 is probably the most famous and influential chapter in the Bible because of the importance of the Ten Commandments, not only to, Christ, to the Christian faith, but also to the Jewish faith as well, because the Jewish faith still hinges very closely upon the Ten Commandments and the commandments found in the Old Testament. Also, our moral fabric within our nation, within our country, and within society hinges a lot upon these moral laws that we see uh, within the Ten Commandments as well. No matter how much society tries to pride itself on having progressed beyond religion, and upon, upon faith and upon believing in God, our society still comes back to many of the principles that God has given us uh, within the Bible, which I think is actually um, important for us to understand because no matter how far we try to distance ourselves from God, God has still put within us an innate desire uh, to search for him as well. This chapter, it's easy to say, has a huge impact um, on all of us. Now, we can approach the Ten Commandments from a whole lot of different angles. All right, We can come at it uh, from the legalistic standpoint. We can come at it from the very uh, liberal standpoint. We can come at it from any number of angles. And what we've tried to do from this series is try to show you, here is what God's law says. Here is where we have messed it up royally. But then here is where the solution is found in Jesus Christ. Because God does not, and this is just like God, God will not leave us condemned. He will always pave a path to redemption. When, con when condemnation finds its way to us, and it will, we're born in it, but he does not leave us condemned. He loves us too much. He, pre he, he paves the path to redemption. And so that's what we've been seeing through this passage of Scripture. Every thou shalt not there is an inferred, instead you shall, into that. Because it's not so much, I hope we've seen from this angle of the Ten Commandments, it's not so much about God giving us a list of do's and don'ts. What he is saying is, I want you to understand me. I want you to see my desire for you. This is the way I created you to be. This is where Adam and Eve have messed us up, and this is where I want to restore you to the picture and to the person and the trophy of grace that I created you to be. So no matter what angle you come at, from the Ten Commandments, though, the thing is, I think that we're left kind of looking at it and going, this is awkward, right? You look at the Ten Commandments and you see, have no other gods before me. You see, don't murder, don't cheat, don't be greedy, don't, you know, be nice to your parents. All of these things, and we realize we failed, so we're left with this awkward tension. And we're left with this response. How do I respond to the commandments that have been given me? And a lot of times, if we don't view the commandments properly, we look at them wrongly and we respond to them in a very wrong and damaging way. You can either 
Some people say, well, here are the commandments. I'm going to get to work making sure that I try to build my life around these commandments, and I try to make sure I follow every single one of those commandments. The only problem is you're going to fail. It's a test rigged for you to fail. We're not supposed to pass the test. So you can get to work on it, and you can bless your legalist heart. You can just keep on trying. You can judge everybody else for not being as good as you and all that type of stuff that comes out of that, but it's never going to lead you to righteousness. Even though God's laws are righteous, they're not designed to lead you to righteousness. They're not designed to make you righteous. The other way we wrongly look at it is we try to ignore them. We realize, hey, I'm never going to amount to this. I'm never going to add up to this, so what's the use? And so we ignore them. We try to explain them away. We try to say that's for all the people back then. It's not for me, and I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. There is no God, and it leads us down this path of just rejecting everything God says because we know we can't measure up to it on our own. So any way we look at it, we're left thinking, here's the Ten Commandments. Is there more to it? We think this can't be it. And you're right. There is more. There's so much more to it. See, because the big idea this morning we're going to look at today, if you get nothing from this message, this is basically the message in a sentence, is that the Ten Commandments were only supposed to be a partial picture of God's will and his design for us, but the gospel fulfills what the law never could. You see, there was a mountain that the commandments were delivered on. It was called Mount Sinai. But that was never supposed to be the only mountain that we paid attention to. That was not supposed to be the mountain where, the great, where God gave his greatest gift to humanity. The mountain where God gave his greatest gift to humanity was a few miles away on a mountain called Calvary. Because the minute, that Jesus, the minute that God laid out the Ten Commandments and the minute the people began to look at the purity and the holiness of God, God began to set in motion the gospel plan that would redeem us. God begins to draw a straight line from Mount Sinai all the way to the cross at Calvary. And that's how we want to close out this series this morning because there is not a passage in Scripture in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that we cannot say does not point to Jesus Christ. Every passage, every verse, every line, every jot, every tittle is meant to point to Jesus Christ as our Savior. Just as on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was the superstar of the moment. He had their attention. As the, as the Pharisee said, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world, the whole word of God points to Jesus. Even these Ten Commandments in this moment that, we've, that we're looking at it this morning, he was paving the way towards the gospel. Thousands of years before Jesus would even come, he was already setting the stage for it. Because this passage, more than any other one, shows how we're supposed to view the commandments. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number 18, and we're going to read through verse number 21 uh, together. It says this, All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning. The sound of the ram's horns and the mountains surrounded by smoke. So right after Jesus finishes, or right after God finishes the Ten Commandments, all the people are standing around. They've heard the Ten Commandments and they're seeing all the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. And then the Bible says this, when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and that you will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance. And I love what this says here. As Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Holy Spirit, please speak this morning through the word. I pray that me as a, as a faulty, frail, futile messenger, that you would help me hide behind the cross and you would help me 
to point the way from Sinai to Jesus. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. This passage shows us a few important things. Number one, the reaction of God's people to uh, God's mighty display of power. Okay, so here they are, they're standing there, they've seen all this thunder and lightning and smoke and, and earthquakes and all these things happening and they hear this perfect and holy law and they realize God is huge. And I can tell you this, whatever your view of God is, we all struggle with the problem of trying to minimize God. A lot of times it's because we just don't have the capacity to truly take him in for all he really is. But our minimizing of God always leads us to trouble. Whatever your picture of God is, it's really just not big enough. Just go ahead and operate under that understanding. One day we're going to get a clear picture, but it's only going to be after we've been brought in by grace and given our glorified, our glorified selves to be able to take all of that in. It also shows us their vulnerability and their conviction in the face of his immense holiness. When they stand before God and they see his power, all of a sudden they're like, oh man, how am I ever going to like last very long in the presence of this greatness? But I love what this also shows us. It also shows us his undeniable proof of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his compassion, of his love. And it also shows us the beginning proof of the gospel plan in our lives. In this passage, immediately after God gives a law that is so perfect and so holy that it condemns us at every single point, he goes to work on foreshadowing the gospel that would set us free from all that condemnation. When you look at the Ten Commandments and all you look at is the commandments, all you get is condemnation. But when you look at the Ten Commandments in light of the gospel, what you get is a beautiful picture of someone who cared enough for us that in our condemnation, he did not want to leave us there. So today, what I want to do is I want to take just, just a little bit, and I know when I say a little bit, that's Baptist speak for pack a lunch, right? Um, good, good news is we're having communion at the end. It won't be filling, but it will be spiritually fulfilling, right? I want to look at this and look at this line from Sinai to the cross this morning. Number one, what we see here is the gospel begins to go to work immediately after God gives the law. Number one is that God's holiness always, always exposes our weakness. God's holiness always will expose our weakness. There's something that we often don't make a big, a big enough deal about in Christendom or in church life, and that is that the God we worship is a holy God. What that means is, is that he is to be set apart from everything else. It's like there's everything else and then there is God. Okay, so here's the thing. Our view of God's holiness is there's everything else and then there's God. No, it's everything else and then like get on a ladder above the ceiling and say, there's God. This is how high God is above us in his holiness. We can't attain him on our own. So when we see God in his holiness and we see displays of his power and of his might, it leaves us really realizing how insignificant and how weak we really are. The storms that just took place down in, down in the south region of our country, and we hear of hurricanes and typhoons and earthquakes and natural disasters, those are just a glimpse of the power of God. That we just look at it and we say, I have no explanation and I really have no recourse to protect myself from any of that. It reminds us that God, that nature is more powerful than us and God was more powerful than nature because he just spoke it into existence. God is holy, he is powerful, and he is pure, and he is righteous. There is nothing about God that is wrong. There is nothing about God that is sin. And so when we look at him, all his holiness does is expose our weakness. And so what that does is it produces in us a great amount of fear a lot of times. 
See, when you truly see the holiness of God, when it truly comes to impact you, the impact is always going to be fear. It's always going to be that. Now, there are many people today who say, yeah, God is holy, and they just go on about their lives, and there's no fear in their lives. There's no respect for God. I would argue to say that that person has never truly understood either, number one, God's holiness or what holiness really is. Because God's presence, the understanding of God's holiness will always produce fear in our lives. See, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, it says, all the people witnessed the thunder, the lightning, all of that stuff. And it says, immediately they trembled and they stood at a distance. So if you remember all the way back to January when we started this series, remember how the scene was set and how the stage was set. Israel had been in slavery for 425 years. They'd been in slavery to Egypt, the most powerful empire the world had ever known up to that point. And God sends this stuttering guy, this stuttering fugitive, who was once a prince of Egypt, an adopted prince of Egypt as a Hebrew guy, who was a fugitive on the run for murder. And he sends Moses back to say, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh's like, I'm Pharaoh. I'm the most powerful individual in the entire world, in the entire universe. I'm not doing a thing for you. I want these people. These people are mine. They're my slaves. I'm keeping them. And so God, through Moses begins to send 10 plagues that basically unravels the entire economic and social and psychological stability of the greatest nation the world had ever known up to that point. Completely unravels it. And so finally Pharaoh says, I'll, finally Pharaoh says, okay guys, just get out of here. I don't even want you all anymore. And as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind, right? Pharaoh says, I'm going to run after you. And as the children of Israel are standing there at this great water barrier called the Red Sea, and all of a sudden they see Pharaoh's army bearing down on him as he sends the special forces, what happens? Moses puts his staff in the water and God creates a dry highway for them to, to walk through on the Red Sea. And it's immediately after they get to the other side, as the army is inside that highway, what happens? God immediately closes the waters and consumes the entire army, the entire special forces of Pharaoh, completely obliterating the might and the power of that empire. God is powerful. And so as they are standing there, now they're about three months into the trip and they're wandering through the wilderness and God is leading them by a pillar of, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by the day and he's providing manna from heaven and God is just showing himself powerful in every turn. And now he says, I'm gonna give you your law, but here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to set up this, uh, this entire like, barrier around the mountain because when I show up, they can't come in my presence and live. This is the power and the holiness of God. And so as they see the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and they hear all of these things and they, hear the, they feel the ground shake beneath them, they're reminded just how powerful God is. Now, we don't have those moments today in the New Testament age. I wonder sometimes if we should. But have you ever noticed that great tragedies, great events draw people back to God? But only to a certain point where they're comfortable. Never all the way in because the holiness of God produces fear. They hear the commandments and they're all of a sudden, they hear the commandments, they know the power of God and they're thinking, wait a minute, don't murder. I've had murderous thoughts. Don't cheat. Oh man, I, I cheated on my wife. They hear, don't lie. I've told lies. They hear, don't steal. <laughs> I just stole somebody's manna yesterday. And they're all of a sudden thinking, this lawgiver is going to come at me. They're thinking I'm in trouble. Kind of like how we've probably all felt each Sunday in this series because we've all violated every commandment to some degree. And they're thinking, I'm in trouble. 
Why do these commandments hit us so hard? It's because God's laws are a reflection of his holiness and his purity. Because if you remember all the way back to the first message in the series, we saw that Exodus is really an account of God wanting to let people know who he was. And the best way that God has chose to let us know who he is is by telling him or telling us what he desires for us. Not what he desires of us. It's what he desires for us. Like a loving parent who sets boundaries and rules because you know, hey, you know, it's not a good idea for you to go play football on New Circle Road, guys. Because it's not so much, you know what, I just want to lord over your life and I just want to make sure that you obey me. It's because you go out there and you do that, you're going to get hurt. It's not what I expect of you. It's what I expect and desire for you. So God wants us to know him by giving us these boundaries that show us how much he cares and how much he loves and how he is a protecting God as well. In God giving the law, the people are confronted with his holiness and with his majesty and with his purity. Add to that the lightning and the thunder and all of that stuff, and you're kind of left with this idea of fear. God's laws also do something else. They reveal to us our failure. They reveal our failure to us as well. So, because when you begin to get a view of God and his true nature, when you begin to get a view of his holiness, the reaction will always be the same. You're always going to realize just how insignificant you really are. You're going to realize how unholy you really are. And you're going to realize just how exposed you really are in the face of this all-knowing, holy God. Because when the Bible talks about our feelings in the presence of God, it's always mentioned kind of in the idea. He uses this idea of nakedness, of being exposed. Does anybody ever have those dreams where you're like naked in front of a crowd of people? Or at least like in your underwear. Anybody ever have those? You're not raising your hand because you, you don't want to admit it, right? Because that's going to make you feel naked. To, 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 okay, I do. I, I at times do. Not lately, but I have at times before. And you know, the, the dream I have is like, okay, I'm in this room and I'm like, maybe I'm preaching. I don't know what it is. And I like run through a door and all that door does is open a room that's a bigger crowd of people, and I'm still naked, right? I was like, dudes, what's wrong with me? Until I started studying what psychologists say, psychologists say that if you have that recurring dream where you're naked in front of a lot of people, it means that you have some secrets that you're trying to hide. So I don't have those dreams anymore. Just teasing. Sometimes I do. We all have secrets. We all have things and things that we're trying to hide from people. But God, his holiness exposes to us and shows us there's nothing that I can hide before God. Because not only is God all-powerful, he's all-knowing. That's part of his power. He knows it all. You can try to fool people that you're not breaking the Ten Commandments, but God knows. And he's the one that we have to stand before to judge it later on. No matter how many judges you have on you and on, on the planet, there's only one judge that's going to outlast them all. And that's our holy judge. See, Adam and Eve is a perfect example of that, right, in Genesis 3. Immediately after they ate the fruit, what they do? They realized they were naked. What they do? They're like, oh man, I'm so, I'm so naked, I'm so insignificant, I'm so uncomfortable. And so what they do, they immediately ran and tried to hide. They immediately tried to cover it up and then they tried to hide from God. This is what sin makes us try to do. Because our first true experience with God should not be one of those, I feel warm and fuzzy about God and his love. And that's, it happens, we get there. But that's the experience we get after we've established a relationship with him. The first experience is one of understanding that I need him and I stand unholy in the presence of his holiness. It's what we call conviction. See, a lot of times with the gospel and with ministry today, what we try to do is we try to minimize and we try to buffer people's conviction. But it's conviction that brings us to the Lord. 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." The old hymn says, right? The reason the law stands to convict us and to condemn us is because it then prepares our heart to crawl on our hands and feet before God and, be, and, and beg for the mercy and the grace that could only heal us. So let's just do this test really quick. Do you, te- do you keep the Ten Commandments, okay? So draw one through ten on a piece of paper or just in your mind, draw one through ten and write Y or N beside it. Yes for yes, I keep this all the time. N for no, I have broken this, all right? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This means I have never put anything before God in my life. I've never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. God and God alone has always been my preeminent thought in mind in my infections. Not my infections, but my affections, sorry. (laughs) He's in the infections too. And in the actions. Yes, I always have God number one in my life. Or no, I failed at that at some point in my life. Number two, you shall make no graven images of me. I have never had any wrong conceptions about God. I've always rejected wrong images of him. I have refused to def- redefine God according to my liking. I assume that he, li- or I have never assumed that he likes what I like or hates what I hate simply because I am the one who hates it. So yes or no. Number three, you shall not take my name in vain. So if you can say this, I have always, every time, without fail, held the name of God that signifies his character in highest respect. I have always invoked his name only with thoughtfulness and reverence. I've never used his name as a swear word. I've never been lethargic or apathetic during worship. I've never desecrated God's name by calling myself his follower but not representing him well. The way I talk, the way I act, the way I spend money, the way I drive, all give honor to the God whose name I bear every single time, yes or no. Number four, six days shall you do all your work and remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So can you say, I have always, without fail, worked diligently and willingly at whatever task that was set before me. I've always seen it as my God-given service each day and making the most out of the time that God has given me. In the six days of the work week, I work hard. I'm not lazy. I don't procrastinate. And I consistently remember to set apart one day weekly to worship God with other people. Number five, I honor my parents. I've never disobeyed or dishonored my parents or any others in authority over me. I've always respected the authorities in my life, given them honor and willing obedience, whether they were watching or not. This includes my parents, my teachers, cops, my traffic cops, the IRS, and my president. Yes or no? Number six, you shall not kill. <laughs> I just went all heck. You shall not kill, right? You shall not kill. I have never murdered anyone. Hopefully you can check that one as a, that's right. I've never had hateful thoughts. And now it's getting a little worse. I've never taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm or bad, or bad happenstance done to another human being. I've never fantasized about the premature death of my enemy, nor wished harm on my boss. I've always held the highest regard for all human life, unborn, born, immigrant, no matter what their race is, etc. And I've always cared as much about the pain of others as I have my own. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. I've never practiced sexual impurity ever once in my life. I've never physically had sex with someone outside the bonds of marriage, nor have I ever had impure thoughts about someone that I'm married to. If I'm married, I've never flirted. I've never fantasized about someone who's not my spouse. Number eight, you shall not steal. I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me. This includes taking credit that didn't belong to me, using someone else's Netflix or Spotify credentials so that I can get it for free. 
I've never cheated in school or on my taxes. I've never taken extra Chick-fil-A sauce to stock my shelves at home. I don't waste my company's time on the internet, tweeting or Facebooking or TikToking or shopping on Amazon. I've always respected the belongings, rights, and creations of others and been completely truthful and fair. I've always been willing to take only what I've earned. Number nine, you shall not lie. I've never lied. I've never slandered against another person. I've always told the truth in every single situation regarding every person I've ever known. I've never exaggerated the truth and I have, all, I have kept all of my covenants and agreements, whether they're verbal or whether they're written. Number 10, you shall not covet. I've never been greedy for something that wasn't mine. I've never been jealous of the abilities, the looks, the position, or the possessions of others. I've rejoiced with others when they have, and I'm glad that they have it even when I don't. I've never complained of what God has provided for me, my car, my job, my pay. I've always been thankful and fully content with what I have and where I am in life, and I'm willing to share what I have with others to bless them more than me. So how'd you do? Look at that. Go back and, 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 and rank that up. You get points for why, uh, you lose points for N. If you're like me, you failed. You got a big fat zero, a big fat goose egg on there. See, because most of us live with the illusion that we're a pretty good person. But when you hold that test up, God is saying, this is what a good person looks like. This is what my holiness dictates to define goodness. And every one of us say, man, I'm wrong on every single point. So can we honestly say that we're good people? See, what we have to understand is God's holiness exposes our weakness and our sin is a big deal. You can try to justify it. You can try to minimize it. You can try to redefine it. You can try to say we've progressed beyond those archaic things. But when God speaks, we're meant to follow. God says that our sin is a big deal because the truth is that we have no defense for our sin there's no way to defend ourselves. So what do we try to do? We try to say it's not that big of a deal. Everyone probably marked no on the list, but here's the thing. When it comes to the test of the Ten Commandments, God is not grading on a curve. He expects 100% compliance. Kind of like the mom who made the, made the chocolate cake for her, for her family for dinner. I mean, the cake was beautiful. It was awesome. And everybody's sitting there and they're eating it. And they're like, this is so good, but mom's not eating any. And they're like, mom, why aren't you digging in? She goes, well, I just wanted to see how it went. She said, because I used the finest ingredients on everything. I used organic flour. I used organic homegrown eggs. I used the best milk I could find. I used the best chocolate that's out there. Everything, I used the finest ingredients. And they're like, yeah, we can tell. It's awesome. Get a slice. And she's like, well, I'm just so glad you love it. Because um, while, I, while I had the batter, you know, kind of before I put the batter in the pan, I had a call and I had to go away and I had to go away and answer that call. And when I came back, Fluffy the cat had confused the batter, the batter bowl for the litter box. And so, you know, I'm just glad that you can't taste what Fluffy's, Fluffy's uh, addition to the cake Immediately, they all start spitting it out, and they're, and they're like, but it still tastes good, right? It's still, you know, it's got so much good in it that you don't even notice the bad. Here's the problem, that when you know that there's the bad in there, it poisons the good. And see, this is the thing with God. God's expectation and God's standard is 100% holiness, and none of us measure up to that. You can have a whole lot of holy, but have a little bit of sin, and it still is what kills us. It's still what kills us. So enter grace. Enter grace. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 20 in verse number 19. It says, you speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. 
The people knew that they were in trouble. They knew that they were up a creek. They knew that they had no defense. So what did they immediately do? They said, we need to find somebody that can be our defense. And they chose Moses. They said, Moses, speak to God for us. If we try to do it on our own, we won't stand. Here's the good news. In our sins, we're all dead. But here's the good news. Number two, in God's mercy, all of our fear diminishes. God's mercy abates all of our fears. So we look at what Moses says in verse number 20. He says to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Moses said in that verse? That seems confusing, doesn't it? Look at it again. Moses responds to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and you will not sin. What he's saying is we're to fear God but we're also not to fear him at the same time. How is that even possible? It seems like a contradiction. He says, don't fear, but fear him and don't sin. See, in the first two verses of the chapter before giving the Ten Commandments, God reminds the people that he's the one that brought them out of slavery and defeated the Egyptians. Remember that? In other words, what he's saying is, I've already saved you. There's nothing you need to do to earn my affection. There's nothing you need to do. I've already chose you as my treasured people. And hear this well, church. God has chosen you as his people. We're not Israel. We're not Israel. We are something completely different. We are his redeemed church. But God has chosen you. He has not said, follow me and do this and then I will save you. He says, I have sent my son to save you. And if you will trust me, I will teach you how to live. You see, I've already saved you. You don't have to do these things to earn my favor and my love. I love you already. Before I give you my commandments, before I show you what I want of you, I'm going to show you first how much I wanted you. I've already redeemed you. This is our good God. He didn't give those commandments as a list to follow to earn our way. He gave us those commandments to follow to know him better. See, there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. Two kinds of fear that can be evoked by the presence of God. And that's one is fear that is ashamed and then runs from his presence. Just like Adam and Eve that ran from his presence. They felt after he, uh, and then it's how Cain felt after he ripped, uh, or how Jacob felt after he ripped off his brother's birthright. It's the fear that Judas felt after he betrayed Jesus. When we come to understand that we fall short of God's glory and God's standard, our only recourse is to be afraid and to run and hide to escape the impending punishment. But there's another fear, the fear that we should live in. And that's the fear that is amazed by God's forgiveness and draws near to him. It's a reverential fear. It's the idea of, man, I don't deserve this. She's not in here to be amazed by what I'm going to say, but it's how I feel every day when I look at Stacy and say, how did I get so lucky? But it is, it's the same thing with God. It's, I don't deserve the grace I've been given what I deserve is condemnation. What I deserve is death. But God in his grace has given me a path out of that through Jesus. It's the fear that David talks about in Psalm 130 when he says, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. And David's a guy who knew about forgiveness. He was a guy who needed a lot of it. And what's interesting about David is at the end of his life, after all the things that he did, we talked last week about Amnon and Tamar, right? Amnon and Tamar happened because of a curse that fell on David's family because of David's covetousness a few years before that. David knew about forgiveness and he says this, he says, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. 
He messed up all the time, yet God gave him forgiveness. That's because God is full of power and authority. He's full of holiness and purity, but he is also full of mercy and grace. He's full of restoring forgiveness. So when we only deserve from him a fear that flees from him, God offers us a fear that flees to him through Jesus. See, God offers us mercy and grace, and what mercy is simply is it's withholding the punishment that I deserve. This is what mercy is. Mercy and grace are like a hand in glove type of relationship. God, when he shows us mercy, he is withholding the punishment that I deserve. Even before giving the people the commandments that he knew they would break and violate, and he knew that we would break and violate, he was setting the groundwork for his mercy to shine through. See, God didn't give the commandments to set a trap for our condemnation. He gave them to lay out a sign that would point to him, the only one who could forgive them. And see, for us, that forgiveness is found in Jesus. For the people in the Old Testament, it was going to be found in an altar. But for us, that forgiveness is found in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, you won't see it on your screen. But it says, therefore, there is now no, zero, nada, nil condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Where the law condemns, Jesus pardons There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So in verse number one of our text, we saw God's mercy. In verse number two, we see his grace. See, because mercy is not getting the punishment I deserve, but grace is then the goodness that I don't deserve. So it's enough for God to give us mercy, just to withhold the punishment that I deserve because of God's applied righteousness. But then not only does he give us mercy, which we don't deserve, he then mounts grace upon us. It's the goodness that I don't deserve. Eternal life, a relationship with Jesus, a place in heaven, being called the child of God, spiritual gifts, all of these things that we get the moment we come to know Jesus Christ. God is not just a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy and grace, and it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's why we sing about his amazing grace that sets us free. So if you're here and you know what a mess you've made in your life and you're, you're still living in the middle of it and you're thinking it's never going to be fixed, here's the thing. Your life may never be fixed here on earth, but Jesus Christ through his mercy and through his grace will fix you. He will bring you from death to life. He will make beauty from ashes and he will redeem you. He will not waste your pain. Even in spite of us, God glorifies himself through us. Grace is the goodness that I don't deserve. The one place that you're safe to be exposed in your sin is in the presence of Jesus because he died to take that shame. I love what the reformer Martin Luther says. He said, the gospel is that, though we, is that even though we are more wicked than we ever imagined, in Christ we are more loved than we could have ever dreamed or hoped for. So that leads to the third point. And these two points are going to be very quick. Is that salvation meets our need. What the Ten Commandments shows us is a great need, a need for pardon, a need for forgiveness, a need for being freed from that condemnation. And the altar in the Old Testament is what showed them their need for forgiveness. So in verses 22 and 23, God tells Moses that they're not to make statues or images to signify God, that because there's nothing that could adequately picture God, the holiness and the goodness of God. So instead, God gives instructions not how to build statues of God, but to build altars of sacrifice to God. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24 says, he says, make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your fellowship offerings, your flocks and your herds. I'll come to you and I'll bless you in every way where I cause my name to be remembered. 
See, altars were not supposed to be these beautiful things. They weren't supposed to be statues. They were simple. They were made of dirt. They were made of rock. And here's the thing. When you came to an altar, if an altar had been used, you come to an altar and it's disgusting. It's covered in ash and blood and bones and reminders of death. Why? Because God didn't want something beautiful. God wanted something grotesque to remind the people that when they saw that, this is what has separated you from me. This is where sin gets you. It's disgusting. It's disastrous. It's devastating. And it costs life. God didn't want beautiful altars. He wanted them to be the horrific sights they were to remind them of the sin. See, altars weren't beautiful statues. They were to be reminded of that. And it was also to remind everybody that they needed forgiveness. Every single person needed that blood and that ash. Ugly and repulsive as it was, every single person had sinned and needed forgiveness. And this teaches us two very important truths about salvation. All the way back in the Old Testament, before Jesus even came, he's already setting up two truths about salvation through the gospel. Look at verse number 25. He says, if you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you're going to defile it. The first thing that we have to understand about salvation from the Old Testament altar is that it cannot be accomplished by human power. Salvation cannot be accomplished by human power. It can only be accomplished by the power of God. See, God said, if you make, a, if you make an altar, make sure you don't take a chisel to it and try to decorate it up and make it pretty. Don't put stuff in it. Don't put stones in it. Don't do anything to make it look pretty. Why would he say that? Does God hate beautiful things? No. If you read the book of Revelation, you will see that heaven is blinged out, man. Heaven is, heaven is beautiful. But God did not want the altars to be beautiful, like I said, because he wanted it to be a reminder, not of him, but of the sin and the one that would cover the sin. See, you know, you know that the rich people, if they could, for their altars, they'd want to have like a really pretty altar. They'd want it to be glowing. They'd want it to be polished. They'd want to have diamonds and stones in it because they'd want people to see how awesome they were. But God said, I don't want anyone to make the altar look beautiful. You know what I mean, right? We do this all the time, right? You see, they'd build these big majestic altars that everybody would want to use with the best materials. And eventually, what would happen is you'd stop sacrificing on it because it'd be too nice to get all that blood and ash all over it. Don't bring that lamb up here because we just finished a capital campaign and we can't have that blood staining the new carpet around the altar. You know what I'm talking about. See, because the things that we try to decorate and pretty up, it eventually becomes about the things rather than the God that we're trying to worship with the things. God wanted the altars to be simple to remind us that they couldn't do anything to earn forgiveness on their power or their talent alone. It would only be through the power of God. There was nothing in the altar that would ever point to the person sacrificing's ability or goodness. Everything at that altar reminded them of their need for God. Salvation can't be earned by human power and also salvation cannot be earned by human goodness. It's a free gift. And I love what Exodus chapter 20, verse 26 says. It says, don't go up to my altar on steps. So basically say, don't build them real high above people, right? And I love what he says. He says, so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. What in the world does that mean? This is so practical, but it's also very humorous. See, God didn't want big high altars that you go up on the steps to get to it because back then, the priests that would oftentimes do the sacrificing, they didn't wear pants. They wore robes, open, open-bottomed robes. So when the priest would walk up, can you imagine this? Everybody's gathered around watching the sacrifice to take place, and everybody's thinking, there goes our religious leader. How great they are. Whoa, hold on. 
Because just, you know, the physics of everything, they're seeing their nakedness. What God means by this in verse 26 is, there is no one, no matter how high you go, no matter how righteous you may find yourself uh, or try to project yourself to be, there is no one that does not have nakedness that's exposed before God. There is no one who does not have sin. The only one who has no sin was not the one making the sacrifice. The only one who had no sin was the one who was the sacrifice, was Jesus Christ. I was a study in this. I was like, man, I had to stop for a minute because it was just, it was just beautiful. All the way back in the Old Testament, the minute God gives the law, he immediately begins setting the standard for redemption from the law. And a lot of people want to look at God and they look at his book and they say, all God cares about is us just being these repressed people. No, God gave us the law for his liberty to liberate us. Because the point is, at the end of the day, even the greatest people in the world, as high as you might be able to climb on the social ladder, as high as you might be able to climb on the spiritual ladder, as many theology degrees as you may be able to get, you're never going to be able to cover your nakedness before a holy God. What that means is you may not have a religious past. You may not know your Old Testament from your New Testament. But here's the thing. No one is more or less needful than for the grace of God. No one. We're all just as needful. And that's a good thing. We all need him. And guess what? He came for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of your works so that no one can boast. And that's what leads us to our conclusion this morning as we get ready for our response is that our Savior has made a way. This is the gospel and this is what we need to draw. This is the line from Sinai. God gave us his standard. We don't meet the standard, but Jesus made a way. Because Jesus came for all sinners. Jesus taught that religious and sinner alike had to be saved alike. See, Jesus taught this revolutionary thing that religious people were not any better than the unreligious people. Because religious people had simply covered up their sin with their religion. It's what happened with the Pharisees. It's why the Pharisees hated him so much. In fact, what Jesus also said was that some people, the religious people, were worse off than the non-religious because at least the non-religious people had no, had no preconceived notions, had no self-delusions about what their heart was like. See, religious people just covered up their hearts and they felt proud about the cover-up. Jesus had pet names for the religious people. You ready? If you, you consider yourself to be one of the religious people, here's, here's what Jesus thought. He said he, th he thought you were fake. He thought you were a hypocrite. He thought you were a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. So on Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and all of the non-religious people are standing there with palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And Hosanna means, Lord, save me now. A realization of their need for the Messiah. The religious people in the book of John are standing back saying, man, how are we going to ever stop this? It looks like everybody loves him. And they're like, why don't they love us? Why won't they follow our ways? Because their ways led to death. Religion still leads to death if it doesn't lead to Jesus. So here's what happened. You had the Pharisees mad at Jesus because he told the truth. You had the Romans mad at Jesus because he was like beginning to incite unrest, the idea that Rome was not their great savior. And so what happened was the religious right and the liberal left from the government came together and plotted to kill the savior. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. The crucifixion of Jesus was one of the few times that the conservative religious right and the big government left agreed on something. They both hated Jesus. The religious right hated him because they attacked, he attacked their pride and told them that they were not better off for all their religious legalism. 
And the secular left hated him because he hated the audacity or he had the audacity to say that he was Lord of all. And here's the thing about Jesus. As Jesus died, he died for you and for me and he died for this, those people who conspired to kill him too. That's how awesome our God is. That's the amazing part of grace. There's mercy. I don't get the punishment I deserve. And there's grace that I get so much more than I do. See, none of us can stand on our own before God. There are so many people who think, I can just do the nice thing. I can do the right thing. And when I get to heaven, God's going to have the scale of justice. And he's going to say, you're good outweighs your bad. The problem is one ounce of bad drops the scale against all the good. Because none of your good is good either. He's going to take all that good, he's going to move it over to the bad too because our works of righteousness without Jesus are like nothing. Following all the commandments without Jesus is like nothing. And I love what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 21. None of us can stand on our own before God because we need a mediator. Here's what it says. In verse 21, and the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. While everyone else stayed back and cowered in their fear and in their need of a mediator, Moses stepped in. Moses was the mediator for Israel, but Jesus is our mediator. In Romans chapter 5, it says, God proves his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ stepped into the darkness where God was. He bore the sin and the shame. He bled and died for us as our mediator. And because of that, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 could be written that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the only way to salvation. See, other religions are just going to give you laws to keep so that you can hopefully work your way to God. Only in Christianity do you find that Jesus says, just follow me and I'll carry you to him. Jesus' main ministry was not to just teach us, although he taught us a lot. His main ministry was to live the life that we were supposed to live, but didn't. And then die the death that we were condemned to die. And let us live after that. Other religions don't work because they can't deal with your sin. Every other religion is just going to give you a whole list of things to follow to find God. But only Christianity is going to give you a savior to follow straight to him. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning. If you're just looking for a religious teacher or if you're just looking for a way to kind of just fix your life or make your life a little bit better. Jesus is not you, is not for you. But if you realize I'm lost and I'm undone, spiritually speaking, I'm a hot mess. Jesus is your only hope. Come to him today. So there it is, 12 weeks, 10 commandments. All this brings us full circle from the mountain of Sinai all the way to Calvary where the cross of Jesus stood. And this morning is with it being Palm Sunday, what kills me about the story about Jesus Christ in the Gospels is that within a week, people would go from loving him and crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us now, to crucify him just like a common thief. How does that happen? It happens when we take our eyes off of God who exposes our need for Jesus. See, somewhere between Hosanna and crucify him, people took their eyes off of their need to be redeemed. 
And I think that happens with a lot of us today. And that's exactly what everything is built in society and in our world today. This is the way the enemy wants us. He wants us distracted from seeing ourselves exposed before God. Because once we are exposed, we can be redeemed. But church, this morning I ask you today, go back to that list. Look at all the no's that you wrote down on that list and realize you are exposed. Will you be redeemed? Will you be redeemed? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.